0: All right, hey everybody! Welcome to uh, Thursday night. We're um, continuing our our prophecy updates, and tonight we're going to be going through the book of Daniel in chapter ten, and probably part of chapter eleven. But before we start, uh, we're going to pray, and then Justin's going to lead us in some worship. So let's pray. Father, thank you for a chance to gather together, and uh, Lord, wherever we're at tonight, whether we're seated here. Um, in person or if there's folks online or maybe people listening to this later, Lord, thank you that you love us, that you're a good shepherd, that you're not a God of wrath toward us. If we found our place with you, that Jesus, you have turned the wrath of the father away and fully satisfied every, every debt that we could owe for things that we've done. And you provided healing even for the things that people have done to us. And so, Lord, we rejoice in your forgiveness. We want to extend that to others. And tonight, as we sit, to be reminded that you are the God who is loving towards us, but also in charge of all of history. You're the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. There's not anything that's going to happen in my life, in the life of our country. When we look at the world around us and we hear, boy, wars and rumors of wars everywhere. You know, that these guys blow up a pipeline? Are these guys going to take over that country? Is there a coup things look out of control, but it's so good to stop and sit at your feet and remember again, no, everything has been written in your book before anything came to be. So tonight, Lord, when we finish, may we be impressed with you again. May it be that we would find peace and trust in you. And may our eyes be lifted to you right now, you know, the burdens we all carry. And as we get ready to express our worship to you in song, we pray for your spirit to lead us and that this would be a sweet, fragrant offering to you in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so uh, we're in the book of Daniel, chapter 10. Would you guys be willing to scoot up? I really would love it if you were closer. I'm going to ask questions, hopefully, and then you can answer them. I don't feel Daniel, chapter 10. So if you were here uh, when Chris did Daniel 9, you know that uh, the book of Daniel is filled with... Uh, Man, there's 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 no other book with the kind of prophecies that Daniel has, the kind of specificity, the timeline. Daniel chapter nine, uh, you know, sometimes called the backbone of Bible prophecy, covering uh the kingdoms from the time of Daniel, starting with Babylon, all the way through the end of uh, history until until Jesus comes back. And by the time we pick up Daniel chapter ten, we're starting the fourth of Daniel's visions. Um Daniel is an old man when we get to this part, uh, the kingdom of Babylon. The Remember that statue? Do you remember what the four kingdoms were in that statue that were listed? So, yeah. First one, go ahead. Yeah. You had it. Babylon. Babylon's the first one, the head of gold, right? And then what was the second one? You said it, Robert. Persia, the Medes and the Persians, right? It was the second one. And then the third kingdom was going to be? Greece. Greece. And the fourth kingdom? Rome, right? And then the fifth kingdom's kind of an amalgamation. It's kind of the echoes of Rome. It's those feet of, of iron mixed with clay. Well, if you are using, using the statue as an outline, then you have Babylon, the head of gold, is now already fallen. By the time we pick up chapter 10, they're gone. And the Medes and the Persians have taken over. And Daniel's in his 80s. Now, none of us today that I see in our group here are in our 80s, but sometimes people that are older start to think maybe that they're, they're done, that, you know, my time in service to the Lord and my contributions are over. And it's interesting that one of Daniel's most profound contributions happens when he's probably like 85-ish, 86, maybe 87. So uh, for those of us that are, I'm at 47, I'm like, all right, Lord, how much time do I have left to be effective? You know, um, maybe a lot more than I think. So it's important that we not think we don't, uh, we don't have stuff still to do. Um, let's pick it up in chapter 10. I'll pray again real fast and we'll dive in. Lord, uh, you know what you want to say to us. You know the things that are on the hearts of each of us that are listening tonight. And you said, I love this verse, you said when you sent the Holy Spirit that he would guide us into all truth and he'd remind us of the things that you taught us. So we want your word to be what you said it would be, sharper than any two-edged sword, getting to the thoughts and intentions of our own heart. So as we go through this, may your spirit teach us personally and edit, you know, the things that are in my mind to say, no one's come to hear me, I certainly hope. We've come to hear from you. So speak to us through your word. Thanks for this awesome vision you gave to Daniel. Amen. Okay, so chapter 10, I'm reading from the NLT. Uh, If you've got a different one, I'll try to stop. There's some translation differences that that might be worth pointing out or might be confusing. So chapter 10, verse one, in the third year of the reign of King Cyrus. So King Cyrus is the dude who took over for Babylon after Babylon falls. This is probably around 538 B.C., He's been in power for a couple years. Does anyone remember the thing that was so significant about the first year of Cyrus's reign? There's a a prophecy that's given uh, by Jeremiah. Jeremiah says that there's going to be how many years of captivity? 70 70 years. That's right. 70 years. So when you, when you work, yes, exactly. The prophecy was that, and listen, if you go back and you tie this stuff in from Isaiah, Isaiah, who's long dead had predicted by name that a dude named Cyrus would issue this decree to go back. Like Bible prophecy is one of, I'll probably hit this a few times, one of God's biggest proofs for the validity of the Bible of saying that, because nobody can predict the future, right? You know, you've got those people that are like, hey, you can call in on a 900 number and I'll talk to you. And you know, I hit 56% of the time, right? God is 100% of the time, right? And he's the only being that can do it. And he says in his word, In Isaiah and other places like you guys, this is how you can tell that I'm different from all those other gods and people who make these claims. Because when I tell you something's going to happen, it does. In fact, let me show you this one. I'm going to predict the name of the guy who's going to send you back. His name will be Cyrus. And lo and behold, Cyrus comes on scene in his very first year, issues this decree and says, hey, you guys can go back and rebuild the temple. And please pray for me. It's kind of interesting. You wonder how all that went down if you want to tie some things together in your brain, Nehemiah, remember, was the cupbearer to the king. He's working for Cyrus. And you've got Daniel still floating around in the kingdom. Right here, we see that when Cyrus is around. And you kind of wonder if those guys, Daniel being a high guy in the kingdom, went up to Cyrus and said, hey, you know, interesting, Cyrus. It's nice to meet you. I'm Daniel. I used to work for the king of Babylon, predicted the fall of Babylon, by the way. Also, I've got some other things you might want to look at. Here's a little scroll. Have you ever read Isaiah? Look at it right here. And I wonder if Cyrus is like, oh, man, whoa. He named me? Yeah. Oh man, there I am. You know, he's like, man, I better get on this. Like this God, something, would you please? Yeah. Rebuild that temple and pray for me. Any God that can call me out by name. I just think it's so cool to see those things come together. So here's Daniel. Now he's in the third year of Cyrus, but the, the people have started that journey back in about two years before this. So depending on the dating of this, that when they left, we know the decree went out in his first year and we don't know if the people left right away during that first year or if it took a little time to you know, sell your stuff, <laughs> get ready to travel back to what at that time was essentially a decimated land. You know, It wasn't like jumping out of here and moving to Idaho or Texas or something like that. It was like you're moving to the middle of nowhere where there's no facilities you're going to rebuild. Kind of like maybe our ancestors coming out west. So it may have taken some time. And if it was the later date, then it would more likely have been that the temple hadn't been rebuilt, took about 20 years after they got there for that to happen. But the first thing they did when they got there was rebuilt the altar and started those sacrifices. And they started that in the fall. So if we're looking at this uh, timeline, Daniel's probably, I'm guessing, there's some debate, it could be a year and some months or a few months, I think it's a few months after the sacrifices had restarted back in Jerusalem. But Daniel is still in Babylon. So just to set the stage for you, it's about 538. Anyway, in the the third year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, that was the name he picked up from um, from before, had another vision. He understood that the vision concerned events certain to happen in the future. Or you might have the vision was true. It's that idea of, yes, this is going to happen. Times of war and great hardship. When the vision came to me, I, Daniel, had been in mourning for three whole weeks. All that time I had eaten no rich food, no meat or wine had crossed my lips and I used no fragrant lotion or you might have ointments or oils there. So he even gave up essential oils during this period of time. I thought was really interesting. You know, <laughs> three weeks had passed. Now, I don't know if, you know, Daniel, if Daniel hadn't been washing himself or anything, maybe other people around him were also in mourning during that time. Like, Daniel, you, you really smell, bro. You need to use some lotions. These are just things that I think about. You don't have to go with that. Now, uh, one little comment here, sometimes people refer to this as a fast. Uh, just to be clear, in the Bible, the word fast denotes the absence of eating food in each case. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't do things of self-discipline or like us today, sometimes we'll say, you know, for a week of prayer and fasting, hey, I'm gonna give up social media or I'm not gonna watch TV or something. Those are valid because the point of fasting is to draw near to God, to reclaim time, to, to press into him. But strictly speaking, biblically, the word fast denotes not eating food. It would be similar to, sometimes we get away from what words actually mean, right? Sometimes people say, I tithe 2% or I tithe 20%. Well, the word tithe means 10%. Like it actually denotes if you want to give less or give more, you're free to do that. That's a New Testament thing. But when someone says they're tithing, it actually means something. Fasting actually means something. You can do something different and have it be meaningful to God, but it's not that word. So I wouldn't strictly call this a fast, though it's clear Daniel is denying himself the purpose of seeking God. And in the verse we just read, it doesn't specifically say he's praying, but just by way of jumping ahead a little bit, if you cruise down to verse 12, you'll see that he's praying. If you have an NLT, it'll say praying, or it might say that your words were heard. Do you have something along those lines in verse 12? Nobody? Okay. Yeah. So Daniel is praying during this time. I just, it's not explicit in the section we're in, but you need to know that Daniel's purpose in mourning is prayer. So there he is. And one more thing here, it says he's um, he's by the the river Tigris. So we're on to verse four. Uh, April, on April, I'm gonna say April 23rd, the NLT does some math work for you here to tell you exactly where you are. So we're 530, um, what did I say what year we were in? Oh, sorry, look at my notes here. It's uh, 536 BC and it's April um, 23rd. So that's kind of fun. I love it when they put the calendar together like that. Now, if you're doing the math on that, That means that Daniel's period of mourning started right after the Jewish New Year, probably two or three days after, and went through the period on the calendar, the Jewish calendar, that would have been Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits; those three spring feasts. So this is before Pentecost, but during that time, Daniel is mourning. Why is Daniel mourning? It doesn't say. But we can speculate, why do you think, what are some reasons Daniel might be mourning at this point, do you think? Oh, sorry. What's that? Sheila first, and then because he, the he saw the war. Yeah, the vision is troubling. Okay, the the vision or whatever he sees is troubling. The temple's, the temple's not built. Yeah. What do we know about? That's I'm gonna not say that's the only one, but what do we know about Daniel? What did he? What was his practice all through his life that we know about? There's a specific thing it says about Daniel. We've we've looked at this. Remember what it is? Yeah, prayer's right. But what was it that he did? Do you remember how he prayed? He got busted for. He got thrown in the lion's den for this. Yeah. He prayed three times a day. He'd go to his upper room and he'd open the, do- the windows and he'd pray east. And the reason they'd pray east is they would pray toward Jerusalem. The temple had been destroyed, but that was the place where God had dwelt. And so the best they could do is they would pray towards that place. Daniel's heart has been for Jerusalem where he was deported from in 605 BC as a teenager and God's place, God's people and God's place. And so man, the temple is, is not rebuilt. He may have gotten that word. If you look at Ezra chapter four, if you want to write these down, you can look at it later. The first five verses of Ezra four and verse 24 detail this whole political operation that was, <laughs> it's not far from our day. There were lobbyists back then and they're working against the construction of the temple. You know, they get there and they're like, hey, we want to help you rebuild. And they're like, you don't have anything to do with us. And so those guys send messengers back and hire lobbyists. And there's a whole, you know, political situation going down. Maybe Daniel's mourning over the fact that the temple has been stalled in the rebuilding process. Maybe he's mourning. What's another reason he could be mourning? So the the temple's not rebuilt. What else? The city wall's still down. Yeah, Jerusalem still lies in ruins. Where do you think Daniel would like to have been? Yeah, yeah. Here's Daniel, his whole life, you know, wanting God's place to be rebuilt even being the one to, to recognize that prophecy in Jeremiah in chapter nine, and start praying for that to happen. Seeing the people go and not going with them. Have you ever been in that place where you wanted to be part of something that God was doing and he said no? Yeah, I think most of us, if you've been a Christian for a while, I don't think that's uncommon. Boy, what do you do when the Lord doesn't let you participate in something that's good? I mean, it was right that they went back, right? You know the guy with a classic story I think of, I'm reading Luke right now, is uh, uh, there's a story where Jesus says yes two or three times, and then he says no. And it's the story of him when he goes to see the demoniac. Do you guys remember this? Mm -hmm. So he goes across to, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he runs into this dude who's possessed by a ton of demons. And he's just crazy. No one can restrain him. And Jesus delivers him from the demons. Remember what the demons say? They're like, have you come to torment us before the time? I always love that the demons are scared of Jesus. Like he hasn't done anything. He just showed up and they're like, don't destroy us. If you ever are scared of spiritual things, which are real, we'll see it in this chapter. Like Jesus is just, just shows up and they're like, please. And so they beg him, can we go in the pigs? So into the pigs they go and we have pigs in space. You know, they fly off into the, off the cliff. And the pigs ask Jesus permission. Can we please go into the pigs so you don't destroy us? And Jesus says, yes, he gives him permission. And then the people from the town come out and they see what's happened. And they see the guy delivered, clothed, and seated in his right mind, the power of Jesus. But they see the pigs, how they made money, destroyed. And what do they ask Jesus to do? Ask him to leave. And Jesus says, okay. Yeah, he gets back and he's like, sure, Okay says yes to the demons. He says yes to the people. Obviously, the demons are evil. The people are rejecting Jesus. That's terrible. He's like, okay. And the guy who's been delivered says, please, can I come with you? Please, can I follow you? And what does Jesus say? No. Oh, that poor guy. Man, if I just got delivered by demons and I want to follow Jesus, I'm, I'm one of the disciples. I'm like, get that guy in the boat. Let's go. We're taking him on the tour. Just brother, give your testimony. Man, I was, you know, delivered from deep. And Jesus says, no. And he tells him, go back and tell everybody, the things that god has done for you and he's like jesus kind of first missionary really he hasn't even sent out the 12 at that point in the story and so the guy goes through the decapolis and and tells but god, i bet jesus i bet he was bombed when jesus said nah now nah, you got to stay here mm. so many times in the bible you can find these examples of god telling people who had a good desire no david hey i want to build you a temple it's not for you buddy no you know this is a hard thing that is so important to learn. This is such an important part of maturing, I think, and such an important part of continuing with the Lord is being able to receive his no. It is so disappointing. When you look at the, I mean, if you, if you say, Lord, I'd like to go murder somebody. And he says, no, it kind of makes sense. And you do the math, like, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd like to murder him, but I get that that's wrong. But when it's something good, you know, it's something that you're fighting for that's worthwhile. You know, you, you want to have a child. You want to be married. You want to be in ministry. You want whatever it is. And you're looking at it and you're like, man, I can see in the Bible where it says this is good. And you're telling me no. That can lead to some mourning sometimes. I wonder if that was it for Daniel. We don't know. But I wonder if that was it. So here he is, an old man. Daniel was a eunuch, you know, no, apparently no wife or children that's recorded. The people of God have gone back to the temple to rebuild it things aren't going very well and there's Daniel still serving an old man and I wonder if he was mourning you can say that's garbage you might be right I don't know but that, we do know that he was mourning so it could be any of those things there maybe maybe there's other reasons you can think of but I think it's important to see that even godly people have a hard time sometimes with the things that God shows them. mourning is not wrong for a follower of God I love Daniel's response in it though what was he doing while he was mourning he was praying he was praying and we know what he was praying for. And we'll get to that part in just a minute. So Daniels restricts himself in this way. It's interesting too, to me anyway, that his uh, self-denial reflects kind of what he did in Daniel chapter one. Remember, he kind of did the same thing. He didn't want to eat food that sacrificed to idols when he first gets there. So they change his name. They enroll him in Babylon University. But he's like, I won't eat any sacrifice stuff to idols because 10 commandments, bro, I can't do it. So he goes to just water and vegetables. So there it is. I will note though, that it does say that uh, no uh, tasty food, Food had crossed my lips. So it's clear from the Bible that meat is tasty. So for anybody that's a vegetarian, just know that <laughs> the word of God says <laughs> meat is tasty. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. And uh, and apparently he gave up essential oils too. I think that's interesting. So yeah, for all you essential oils people, Daniel was your customer. Okay, verse four, 24, uh, on April 23rd, I'm standing on the bank of the great river Tigris. By the way, one more thing, that's about 35 miles from Babylon. So it does seem like he's still in the government government work at that point um so that may have been one of the reasons daniel didn't go that's sorry i meant to cover that why didn't daniel go it doesn't say what do you think daniel might not have gone isn't he's a godly guy right he's one of the few guys in the bible that has no recorded sin doesn't mean he didn't sin just no nothing listed so why doesn't daniel go back to jerusalem yeah it, it seems like maybe one of the presuppositions is maybe the people were like uh Hey, you, you can do a lot of good for us here. Maybe it's like that demoniac where the Lord says, no, I've got other things I want you to do for me. You know, you're going to be here with the king advocating for the people of God. Um, which by the way, that's a case for, there's a place for some people to be called into politics, man. I'm so grateful it's not me, but you have people like Nehemiah and Esther, you know, maybe God's giving you this place for such a time as this. Maybe Daniel is one of those guys. Also, he's in his eighties. So maybe that's a tough go. It's like, we're going to go, you know, into the wilderness and kind of rebuild Jerusalem, maybe that's a hard thing for Daniel, but yeah, he seems to be still working for the government here. So it says, he looked up, verse 5, and saw a man dressed in linen clothing um, with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem, and his face flashed like lightning, and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze, and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people." Only I, Daniel, saw this vision. The men with me saw nothing, but they were suddenly terrified and ran away to hide. So first off, does this description sound like any other verses in the Bible you can think of? Yeah, exactly. Good call. Yeah, I think verse seven, when it says everybody with me didn't see what was going down. That sounds very much like Paul's situation where he sees Christ speaking to him and the other men hear a voice. They don't understand the words. They just hear the sound, but they don't see anything, but only Paul. Has that experience yeah but think about verse six take a look at verse six do you see anything there that reminds you of some other verses in the bible yeah rev one revelation chapter one there's this description where john has a vision and really an appearance of jesus to him and a lot of these um, descriptions sound like that also ezekiel has a vision of god and there's some some echoes of that so there's a debate among people as to whether or not this is jesus and if we only had these verses you'd say why the debate it Sounds like Revelation 1, sounds like Jesus meeting with Paul. It sounds like Ezekiel. Well, the reason there's a debate is because of what we see further down. So just hold on to that. I tend to think it's an angel, but I'll get to that part as we go. So verse 7, oh, I'm sorry, we read that, verse 8. So I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me. My face grew deathly pale, and I felt very weak. And then I heard the man speak. And when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. I just want to make one little note here. Not a big point. If you want to fight me later, you can. But um, sometimes people talk about, have you ever heard of the whole idea of being slain in the spirit before? Yeah. yeah, so so we don't actually see anything in the Bible that quite mimics that experience as people describe it today. Most of the time, if you've seen any videos or maybe you've been part of those services, people are always falling backwards. That's kind of the description. And there are people in the Bible who fall down in the presence of God or angels or faint, but they almost always do this. They fall face down on the ground. It's a different kind of experience. I just would note that it's different because some people will read these and go, see, Michael, look, it's slain in the spirit. is in the Bible. And, well, it's different than what you guys are describing in its effect. It's a minor point, but I just like to point that out. It's different. People always fall face down before the Lord or before um, angels when they faint so anyway verse 10 just then a hand touched me and lifted me still trembling to my hands and knees and the man said to me daniel you are very precious to god what does your version say there beloved, beloved. i love that Oh, Daniel, man. Greatly, loved. greatly loved there's uh, or greatly esteemed does anybody have greatly esteemed Yeah, those I just want to take time on that to say, what's the first thing that this person, whether it's God, whether excuse me, whether it's Jesus or an angel, wants Daniel to know that he's loved. Now, this sounds I don't know about you. I've grown up in church. Sometimes when people talk about the love of God, it just seems like, yeah, yeah, you know, God loves everybody. He has to love me. You know, Uh, this is a precious. This is a precious truth. And I think it's worth pointing out that the first thing that God wants Daniel to know in the middle of his mourning, maybe confusion over the vision, who knows what else is going on in his life, is Daniel, I love you. You are precious to me. And it's easy also for me to look at the story and go, well, of course he loved Daniel. Of course, Daniel was precious to him. Daniel has no recorded sin. You know, what a faithful guy. You know, he's in Babylon and he doesn't deny the Lord. You know, he won't eat the king's meat. He goes in the lines. And of course, God loves Daniel. But if you want to do a fun study when you go home tonight, or you can do it while you're sitting there, pull out your Bible app or open a website, Blue Letter Bibles, great, and do a quick search on the word beloved and see how many times that comes up, especially in the New Testament, that applies to Jackson and Marnie and Jeff. And Sheila and Robert and Dylan and me. You guys, we are precious to God. Now, that's not just a doctrinal thing. This is supposed to be something that is animating and moving to us. I would argue, um, and boy, I sound like I'm preaching this like I know, this is an issue in my life. I have a deep problem receiving. If you ask me, do you believe that God loves you, Michael, say, oh, absolutely. Let me give you 18 verses on that right now. But if you ask me, do you really believe that? Like do you walk around during the day feeling, believing like God loves you. I will say, no way. <laughs> I am pretty sure that I am such a screw up and he's mostly like, man, what am I gonna do with you? You know, does anybody identify with this? God says these things to us. He says these things to us because he knows that we're like that. He knows that we're like that. Now, you, I'm allow, allow me some imagination. Again, if you're Daniel and you're thinking like, if he's mourning over where he's at in life and thinking like, man, why can't I be in Jerusalem? Why do I gotta be stuck here, childless, wifeless, far from the things of God? Daniel, I love you. I see you, man, highly esteemed by heaven. Listen, listen to what Paul writes. And I love the NLT on this, so I'm gonna use it um, from Ephesians chapter three. You might flip over there to Ephesians chapter three. I want you to see this verse and maybe... Block it out. Maybe stick it on your mirror. I have some verses that I keep on the dashboard of my car. Maybe you want to stick this up there. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. This is an excerpt from Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. When Paul prayed for them, he's like, oh man, I want some things for your life. This is what Paul really wanted for them. This is right at the end of his doctrinal section before it pivots to these practical things. Here's how I pray. Verse 18. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. He's like, here's the thing I wish you guys could get. I wish you could get how much God loves you. Some people rail against that. They're like, you know, if we just tell people God loves them, they'll just go and live any way they want. We need to get them to really fear the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is important and a good thing, of course. But no, the, the, the primary motive The thing that God wants us to know that Paul prayed, that he's like, I wish you could get this, is that God loves you, that he thinks you're great. He enjoys you. You are precious to him. Listen to part of why Paul thought that was important. Look at 19. This is the gist for me. May you experience the love of God, or may you know, do you have, may you know the love of God? So the word know, there is this gnosis. It's this kind of full knowing kind of, yeah, it's a kind of knowledge that is an experiential knowledge. So it's not just you. it says I love you, but someone's like, I get it. Oh, God really does love me. So that's why the NLT says, may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to fully understand. That means you cannot overestimate God's love for you. You couldn't think, I'm not sure. I think maybe I think too much of God's love. You can't do that. It's beyond your ability to fully understand. When you think you've gone too far, you have further to go in understanding how much God loves you. Here's why. Then. When you, full, when you experience God's love, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. The key to maturing and growing in our lives is understanding God's love for us. Now, let's think about this for a minute. I know I'm belaboring this point. I think this is a really big deal. Why does that matter? How How does love Think about, uh, for me, a lot of times when I get difficult truths in the Bible that are hard for me to wrap my brain around, I try to recontextualize them into relationships like husbands and wives or parents and children because those are two relationships God says parallel his with us. So when you, have you ever been in love? Okay, what happened when you felt like that other person really loves me? You love them back. Well, yes, okay, but yeah, tell me what that looked like. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. You love them back. You feel at peace and free. Is that, there's those weird, you know, when you see someone and they're in love and, and they're just, they have this weird, they're just rolling through life different. Like you're not sure they're fully picking up all the things that are happening around them. Like the building's on fire and they're just kind of cruising. Like they just go through life a little different when they're pretty sure that they're loved. Well, how else? Cast out, fear. Cast out fear. That's good. Perfect love casts out fear. Great verse. Yeah, love gives us security. One of the things I love at our church, and um, this sounds like I'm breaking. Maybe I am a little bit. I love, God's given us a billion children, as you know. (laughs) You've been here. And I love that I think our kids, especially when they've been around, start to feel really safe and valued. It's important to me. I'm not saying everyone here is safe. You know, I hope you'll still watch your kids. Sometimes I see kids and I haven't seen a parent with them in a while. I'm like, please watch your kids. I don't know everybody here. But I love that our kids start to feel like I'm important and people care about me. And they just feel really secure. They're just like, I'm gonna go grab that ball. I'm gonna march in here and grab a donut. I think I'm taking a water today. I'm going up to that guy and asking me if he'll give me money for camp because they feel secure. They know that they're loved. That's so great. Don't you want that for all children? And the opposite of that, when a child doesn't feel loved, oh, it's heartbreaking to watch those kids when they're just like, they're kind of gun shy, you know, maybe they've been hit or they haven't been told they're loved or awful words have been said to them. And that, that feeling of fear and insecurity that you watch is so painful. And really that's the place we come from before we don't before we know the Lord, right? Where my performance was what mattered and I can't measure up and everything's transactional. And now God says, I love you. You're safe, you're secure. I'm gonna take care of you. I've taken care of your sins. I'm gonna meet your needs. I'm gonna give your life purpose and meaning. What else, let me just keep going. What else happens for you when you think someone loves you? Trust, Trust? okay, yeah, what else? What you, mm-hmm. you can ask what you need, yeah. Yep, you can, You can. yep, you can know God's gonna take care of you. You can ask someone that loves you for something like little kids do. Mom, I'm hungry. They don't, I don't know. Should I ask her for a sandwich? I'm not sure what kind of mood she's in. Mom, where's my food? It's almost a little expectant. You just, yeah, but what else? You feel like you have a present and a future. Say why, Jim. What do you think? Why do you say that? That sounds good. Tell me more. Uh, Yeah, life isn't worth living truly without love. Love gives us hope. Yeah. There, you know, there's these studies where, well, it's not a study. It's practical. But in some of these, uh, Romania had an awful orphan problem, especially during the 80s. Some of you know about this, maybe into the 90s. And they would have these places that people would go as, on mission trips in the U.S. just to sit and hold babies. They had whole wards of children that were cared for. They were fed. They were clothed. They were, their physical needs were met, but no one ever touched them. And they would walk into these wards of all these kids and it would be dead silent. No crying because those babies had cried and no one had ever held them or touched them and they just gave up. And so you'd have deaths of despair, children just dying because they weren't loved. Love is, yeah, okay, that's awful. You guys were loved. <laughs> one more thing though, I really wanna get to this. What happens for you towards the person when you trust that they love you? What do you do? Love them back. You love How, talk to me about that. What's that look like? Way that God loves yes, we want to love others the way God loves you. Jeff, what'd you say? You, please you wanna please them yeah you are looking for ways to please them, man if you've ever had a kid and that you that you love, I don't have children but my my nieces or nephews, man. I want to know what they want and what they like, and the idea that I could give them a gift that they'd enjoy or take them on an experience that they thought was fun isn't that just go right to your heart yeah. or Everything you do, you start your whole life starts to be animated by that relationship. You think, man, what can I do to make this better or make their day better or help them? So here's the thing is that the people that are critical of the idea of love between God and people and saying, oh, if we just tell people that God loves them, they'll just go do whatever they want. That's not actually how... Real love works. Now, there are people who have a weird view of love, you know, and just it's a taking thing, but when you really are loved, your response is to love back. And the way that shows up often is pleasing. You want to please those people. And so God then has a relationship with us where we'll want to please Him. When you realize you're secure, that you have a future, that all of your life can matter, that your needs are going to be met, that God is going to provide for you, and all those things, you think, hey, I want to please this guy. He's he's amazing. So I just want to spend time on that. God's first word to Daniel was, I want you to know I love you. And I think it's important for us to know that ourselves and take time on that. Man, if you are like me and you have trouble with this, it might be worth spending some time asking the Lord, Lord, like Paul, would you help me to know how, why, how long how high and how deep your love is would you help me to experience your love though it's too great to fully understand so that i can be made complete with all the fullness of life that comes from god this is something he wants you to know that you're deeply loved and we haven't always said that in church some of us have grown up in weird church backgrounds it was kind of a guilt manipulation right so um, you need to know you're loved all right there very good daniel you're very precious to god lord i pray tonight for someone listening including me Oh, that I would receive that into my heart and I would let that be a place of safety and security that I often don't. Forgive me for living to um, measure up to my own standards or to please people or just living if you're how, how much it must break your heart when we, who, you know, that you would love us so much to give up your own life for us and then for us to uh, sort of go back to works as a way of trying to to be enough for you or something must be heartbreaking so lord please let us know your love that we could be made mature and complete amen all right on we go so he says this to daniel and then he says so listen carefully to what i have to say to you we're in verse 11 stand up for i have been sent to you and when he said this to me i stood up still trembling then he said don't be afraid daniel since the first day you began to pray for understanding And to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. So when did Daniel's prayer get answered? Day one. Yeah. Now, he was mourning for how long? And when did this uh, messenger from God come to him? Yeah, it took him to the end of 21 days. It's at the end of that mourning period. I know it's 21 days. But the angel's like, hey, by the way, God heard your prayer first day, sent the message. Now, if I'm Daniel, I'm like, I have questions why did it take 21 days for god's answer to come you guys this is one of the most fascinating sections in the whole bible it's so cool watch this and i have come in answer to your prayer verse 13 but for 21 days the spirit prince of the kingdom of persia blocked my way the what the spirit prince of the kingdom hold on who is the spirit prince of the kingdom of persia now yours probably just says the prince of persia maybe Said that okay so this is not because it can read you're like oh that's talking about an earthly guy but could a spiritual being be opposed by a physical person no yeah i mean right if you ever, any of you guys ever wrestled a, an angel nope probably not. not yeah not knowingly yeah exactly yeah no, no so, fair enough that's true we do have the angel of the lord uh, uh, a unique experience where jacob wrestles with uh with the lord but yeah the the idea here is that it's a um it's a spirit being a demon um that has something to do with the kingdom of persia now there's a the bible really doesn't give us a lot of detail on these things so we got to be really careful here. I, you know, in our church one of our desires is always to say everything the Bible says but not say more than the Bible says. Now we can speculate, we can say, well maybe it means this, but if you think of a mountain, you know, nice hard ground you can walk on coming down to a lake and that lake is frozen and covered with snow, you know, you got to be really careful where you walk once you get out of the ice because it can feel fine but once you fall through people die. So you, we try to the, the word of God is like that nice firm ground you can stand on. And then when you get to the edge, you're like, well, maybe it means this. You get some people who start writing books and they get weird doctrines and they're all the way like out in the middle of the lake and then someone falls through and they die. And I'm not joking because you see people spiritually ruined by like stuff that just can't be supported by scripture. It might be true. We don't know. So always come back and stand there. So I'm gonna talk about what we can see and what we know. And you're gonna have lots of questions just like me. And I'll just say, man, speculate, look into it, but be really careful going down this road because people get weird about it. But here's what we know. Number one, there is a spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia, or there certainly was. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that demons have apparently territories or areas that they're in charge of. Yeah, and if we'll, we'll get to Ephesians 6 in a minute. Ephesians 6 says that we don't wrestle, six twelve. if keep, you keep notes, against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And so it seems like demons are organized in some fashion into both areas that they look after and also into some kind of a hierarchy. We don't have a lot about that. That's why I say people get into some really weird things we are trying to say apollyon's this level and this guy's that thing and like i don't know i just know that the bible does indicate that there's guys who are in charge of areas and have some sort of authority and power and by the way when you see that and we're gonna he's gonna mention later on here that there's another one uh the for, who represents greece or who fights for greece and then he's going to talk about michael the archangel and how michael the archangel stands for israel and so you have these this interesting power play going on and then you start thinking about just the world today like is there a is there like a demon over the area of like Russia or Ukraine or, you know, in places in Europe? Again, this is now I'm on the ice. This is Michael on the ice. I don't know. I've got zero verses that say that. I'm just saying, well, if there's demons in charge of various areas, is that going down? And is there spiritual conflict that's, you know, happening behind some of what we're watching on the world stage? I don't know. It's totally possible, but we don't know. But we do know that that was the case here. And so could it be? Yes, it seems possible. We, so Daniel's prayer was answered on day one, but there was a 21 delay and it was due to what? Fight. The fight, the spiritual opposition. battle, opposition, Dylan said. That's a good word. Listen, when I have prayer that I've offered up, and I'm pretty sure it's according to God's will. Have you ever had prayer that was long and unanswered? Nobody, everybody's like, hey, dude, mine get answered right away. No, man, everybody's got prayer almost, if you've you've done any praying, that that takes a while. Now, why does God delay in answering prayer? We don't always know, but we do know some reasons, one of which is before us here, that sometimes there's spiritual opposition to that answer coming. I say this because often for me, the the danger in delayed prayer is to think that two, two problems. One is I'm not good enough. That's why God's not answering, right? If I was a better Christian, God would answer my prayers. Anybody ever thought that? Okay, the other one is like, maybe God's not really that good. Maybe he just doesn't love me like he said he did. Maybe he, yeah, maybe I didn't pray right. So it's either my fault or it's God's fault. Well, there's a third possibility. There's a couple of third possibilities, actually. I guess that makes three or four. But (laughs) I guess I'd say there's a third category that has nothing to do with God's intention and has nothing to do with me. And it could have to do with a lot of other things. It It could have something to do with spiritual opposition. So the 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 key the key thing to note here is Daniel persevered through that. Like he didn't give up at day three and say, "Fine, I'm having some meat. God's not answering my prayer anyway." He like kept pushing through. And again, I'm reading Luke right now, so that's just where I'm at. But yeah, it could be. Well, it, I think it says that the morning starts. Uh, that this is a part of that morning. It seems like the he was mourning, and this was a part of that. But certainly, he was mourning during that time. Probably didn't help. Does that make sense? Twenty-one days. Yeah, it was on the 20. 20- yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but on the first day, he's, he's, his prayer goes up as he's mourning, and then the Lord sends the answer, and there's a delay. Um, the other, other possibilities that are worth noting is sometimes there's a delay because God has a perfect answer, but there's a perfect time for that answer. So, uh, yeah, can you think of some examples in the Bible of people that wanted something that was good, and there was a delay? What, what are you thinking of with Elijah? Well, I remember when he for the clouds. Yeah, yeah. And he kept waiting and Like a man's hand. Yeah. Sheila brings up the story of Elijah from the prophets of Baal, right? There's this whole conflict that he has where he says, hey, let's, let's prove who God really is. And God answers with fire. And the people are like, he's God. And then he's like, go waste those prophets of Baal. And they go do that. And he goes, I'm gonna go pray because there'd been this drought in the land for three years. And so now he's praying and he prays and he sends his servant, go look and see if there's any rain coming. If you go to Israel, we go to this mountain. It's super cool. And you can look out and look at the Mediterranean. That's where he's looking like to the West. Is there any rain coming? And you know, here we're like, people pray for rain? Why would you do that? (laughs) We're like, we pray against rain. Elijah, no, I rebuke that. (laughs) No, but Elijah's praying for rain and he goes and he he says, is there anything coming? And the guy says, no, there's nothing. He goes seven times and on the seventh time, finally, the guy comes back, and it says, "You know, Elijah's down with his head between his knees." And James five says this. If you go back and read it, it's super cool. James 5, 16 and seventeen. I'll read it to you. Love this verse. So challenging to me. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human, as we are, or your tradition, your translation would say, with a nature like ours. James's point is Elijah was not a super Christian. He was not a super saint. Elijah was a man like you and me, a human like you and me. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield crops. His point is to say, Elijah was like you and me. He prayed earnestly with persistence and God answered. This is one of the main things that Jesus brings up in his instructions to his disciples to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. I just read this. Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives the Lord's prayer and he follows up the Lord's prayer with this. Let me tell you, I'm gonna summarize it. He says, let me tell you a story. Suppose you go to your friend's house and you're like, hey, I need some bread, but it's late at night and homeboy's already in bed with his wife and kids. Now that sounds weird to us because why would you do that? It's not co-sleeping, but back then you probably had just one big bed. And you know how it is when you get a, a little kid to sleep and you're like, don't move, I'm not moving. Because if I do anything, my child will wake up and no one's going to sleep the rest of the night. And so the guy's knocking on the door. He's like, bro, bro, I need some prayer. He's like, go away. Everybody's in bed and I'm not waking up my kid. And he's like, but if you just keep knocking, eventually the guy's going like, to getting out of bed and answering. And he says, because of your shameless persistence, <laughs> just to get the guy to shut up and leave him alone. So the, Jesus tells another story about the unrighteous judge and the widow. But his main point in this is say, be persistent. Be persistent in praying. Daniel's such a good example of that. For 21 days, he doesn't give up. Guys, if there's been delay, whether it's because of spiritual opposition, whether because God's got a good plan that he hasn't unfolded yet, think of Abraham and Sarah, man, Elizabeth and Zachariah. Remember what the angel says to Zach when he shows up in the temple? God has heard your prayer. I bet Zach had quit praying a long time ago. He's an old man at that point, you know? Oh, I love those stories. One more for you, and then we'll move on. I know we're belaboring this, but I think this is a totally important application from Daniel chapter 10. In Acts chapter 16, Paul's been sent out, and we just covered this a few weeks ago at church. Um, This is chapter 16, verse nine. Paul and Silas, who've been sent out as missionaries to tell people about Jesus, that's literally their job and their mission from God, traveled through the whole area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. What? The Holy Spirit said, don't preach the gospel? At that time, yes. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. And that night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia, north Greece, was saying, come over and help us. And so they they leave for Macedonia. And I always wonder when I read that part, if you just stop at that story, what does God have against the people of Asia that he doesn't want them to hear the gospel? Not Not time yet. Man, when you get to Acts chapter 19, Paul sets up shop in Ephesus and he sets up this little uh, school, the school of Tyrannus, which I always think would be a really cool name for a Bible school. You could have like a Tyrannosaurus Rex icon, the school of Tyrannus. Wouldn't that be sweet? I think it would be awesome. So you go like, to like Tyrannus Hall, sorry, at Tyrannus Hall. And he trains up all these missionaries. These missionaries go out and it says this. It says in chapter 19, verse 10, everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So God didn't have anything against the people of Asia. He just thought, I've got a more efficient way to do it. Rather than just you and Silas going where you can, we're going to send out a whole crew of people and everyone in Asia is going to hear about it. So listen, sometimes when God is delaying, it's because he's got this epic plan he's going to work out. So just be encouraged and be persistent. The word for endurance in the Bible that we've talked about before, hoopamone, to bear up under. It's just, I don't know about you, but I think delays from the Lord, waiting on the Lord, is one of the most exhausting parts of being a Christian. I, I, don't, I honestly don't know if I can think of anything in my life that wears me out more, including opposition, including watching other people fail than the times where you're just waiting on God. It feels like he's not answering, he's not moving. You've got that person in your life you prayed for for years and you're just like, why am I still praying? What's the point of all this? Man, don't give up. Jesus said to be persistent. We've got examples of people being persistent. Sometimes the answer has been sent right then. You just haven't seen it yet. Robert, you raise your hand. Isaiah 40. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll rise up on wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired, just for the people watching. So, well, we'll see if we get down to uh, chapter 11 here. Guys, let's be persistent. Do you have something that you can think of that you know you're supposed to keep praying for that you're tempted to? Hear from the Lord tonight. Keep going. You're loved it's not going to be in vain your labor in the lord is not in vain okay so uh back to the spirit prince situation so we got the spirit prince right and he's opposed the guy and um we're on verse 13 then michael one of the archangels midway through or michael your prince what do you have there you have a different translation what's it say verse 13 because he says i've been opposed by the prince of persia and then michael showed up what does it say one of the chief princes, right? So just another thing on the, the notion of hierarchy within the angelic world or the spiritual world. If you want to write in the book of Jude uh, and look at this later, there's a crazy story that Jude drops about uh, Michael and Satan disputing over the body of Moses. Don't ask me why they were disputing over the body of Moses, but they certainly were because that's what Jude says. And here's what he says about um, Michael. Um verse 9 but michael one of the mighty angels or the the traditional translation is michael the archangel i would just add here that there's only one archangel mentioned in the bible it's michael they don't say archangels so it seems like michael is sort of at the head of the angelic kingdom uh, obviously jesus rules over all those things but he may be the chief of the angels uh, just and and so if you're thinking of it this is sometimes important for people sometimes people mistake the idea that the devil or satan is the opposite uh pole to jesus and that's not true satan would very much like to be considered on that level but he's not you know when you get to revelation it's time for him to be bound they just send one angel to bite him if anything in terms of hierarchy he probably has a parallel position yeah exactly Prime, megatron he has he's probably in terms of hierarchy he's if the enemy is running the kingdom of darkness about a third of the angels falling right then you probably have michael overseeing uh the, the good angelic kingdom he's the archangel there so so michael shows up to help this angel and apparently holds off the 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 dude from persia so this guy can go deliver his his message to to daniel so michael comes and helped him and i left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of persia now i'm here to explain what will happen to your people in the future this is the purpose for the vision the purpose is to explain what will happen to the people of god in the future future to daniel for this vision concerns a time yet to come while he was speaking to me i looked down at the ground i'm in verse 15 unable to say a word. The one who looked like a man touched my lips. I opened my mouth and began to speak and I said to the one standing in front of me, I'm filled with anguish because of the vision I've seen, my Lord, and I'm very weak. How can someone like me, your servant, talk to you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Now I'll just pause here to make one more point. The reason that I don't think this man is um, the same as Jesus is why. So the guy who's been talking with, with Daniel just got done saying, hey, you know, the word was sent as soon as he got prayed, 21 days went by, and now I'm here. And the reason I'm here is Michael showed up to help me. Jesus don't need, help. Jesus don't need no help from anybody. So now the way people resolve that is they say, well, maybe it's two different people. Maybe the, the guy we see in ten six is Jesus because the descriptions match Revelation and Ezekiel. And now there's another angel that shows up later, possible, that doesn't read that way to me personally. So as you will, but we do know this, Jesus does not need help. Also, um, yeah, well, I'll leave that there for now. So Jesus doesn't need help. The think right, I was gonna go down that path. So yes, Jehovah's Witnesses do believe that Michael the archangel and Jesus are actually the same person. I'll just add again that uh, when you get to Jude, especially where if I'd continued reading that passage about Michael, he says to the devil, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Now Jesus wouldn't probably do that because he would be you know, the Lord. But anyway, that's a discussion for another day. So as this guy is speaking to him, this angel, uh, we see Daniel weakened again um, And verse 18. Then the one who looked like a man touched me again, and I felt my strength returning. Don't be afraid, he said, for you are very precious to God. Peace, be encouraged, be strong. And we've talked about how God wanted Daniel to know his value, and I love those. Again, so as he spoke these words to me, I suddenly felt stronger, and he said to me, Please speak to me, my Lord, for you have strengthened me. I just wrote in for myself, Isaiah 50, verse 4. It says that the Lord has given me the tongue of disciples so that I may know how to encourage the weary one with a word. And I look at these words that this angel speaks to Daniel that were so encouraging. He tells him, listen, don't be afraid. I'm looking at verse 19. You're precious to God. Peace, be encouraged, be strong. Be strong. If you're coming to another believer who's weak, who's going through hard things, there's a time to speak and there's a time not to speak. You know, if you think about Job's friends, they were a comfort to him until they started talking, right? They made an appointment, he's in grief. As long as they just sat with him for seven days and were quiet, Job was glad we were there when they start talking, that they create all kinds of problems. So I think one of the first things we need to know is that sometimes when you go to comfort a believer, you just be there with them, don't say anything. But when you speak, when there's a time to speak, the knowledge of how to encourage it, there's a great example of that here. Tell somebody, listen, don't be afraid. Sometimes folks are so scared of circumstances in their life, you can say, don't be afraid. I believe the Lord's going to come through for you in this. You can say, you're precious to God. Somebody who's really sinned in some profound way, they've they've even disappointed themselves to say, oh, you're precious to God. Jesus died for that sin. You belong to him. Peace, be still be encouraged, be strong. These are good words to encourage people. So sometimes folks come in. Our One of the, our big problems as Christians, <laughs> I do this too, is that uh, have you ever been in a meeting where there's prayer requests being given? How many times have you heard the prayer request given and then three different pieces of advice? You know what you should do? <laughs> uh, I was asking for prayer. Well, I've got this idea. You know when I, my cousin did. Now, there's a time for advice. I'm not saying that's bad, but when we're asking for prayer or when somebody's weak, maybe maybe don't lead with advice. Ask the Lord, am I supposed to give advice? What they need is to be brought to the Lord, reminded who He is. Sheila, what are you, you going to say? One of the things that I know she for those of you that, that can't hear, Sheila was making the point to say, when I get somewhere and I don't know what to say, I've asked the Lord. I don't want to say anything unless you tell me what to say, and right, then say that. Right on. Sheila's got, if you want to hear it after, there's a great story of of ministry opportunity. Sheila's got, the Lord's got, she in. Yeah, (laughs) we've all had those experiences where the Lord wants me to go and I don't want to go. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yes, there's a time to be silent, Sheila. May the Lord give you wisdom on that. Okay, we're almost done with chapter 10. Maybe that's as far as we'll get tonight. And then he says, please speak to me, Lord, for you've strengthened me. I like that Daniel says, continue now. I've got strength. You've spoken to me what I needed to hear. So verse 20, the the angel replies, "Do do you know why I have come? And I love this part. This reads so cool to me. Soon, I must return to fight against the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. And after that, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Greece will come. Meanwhile, I will tell you what's written in the book of truth. No one helps me against these spirit princes except Michael, your spirit prince. And I've been standing beside Michael to support and strengthen him since the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. So I just like it. He's like, here's the deal. I'm gonna tell you what's gonna go down. And then I'm gonna go back and fight some more with that guy. Also, there's another one coming. It's almost like a couple, it looks. It reads to me kind of like, did anybody ever watch professional wrestling back in the day? <laughs> like, and in a minute, I'm going to go in and I'm going to open up. a <laughs> it's, just like, it's my own imagination, but the angel just doesn't seem intimidated. He's like, it's on in a little bit. But before I go, I'm going to give you, I'm going to tell you some stuff. So that's kind of where we um, where we get. So we'll get into a little bit of, of chapter 11 here. Um, So verse 11 chapter 11 verse one or two in your bible it's divided differently maybe now then i will reveal the truth to you three more persian kings will reign to be succeeded by a fourth far richer than the others he will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of greece now this is uh, of course future to daniel so he's in the, the reign of the very first persian king cyrus it seems like when he says three more persian kings will come and then one more he's talking about four more persian kings does that make sense right, after Cyrus. So he's not counting Cyrus, four more to come. And that fourth king would go against the kingdom of Greece. Now, this is a big deal because at this point in history, Greece was not a big deal. It was just this little podunky kingdom over there that no one was paying attention to. But God is calling out specifically, once again, the rise of that third kingdom that would follow. And if you think about that that image that Daniel had prophesied about. So this fourth king was Xerxes, right? You've probably seen him portrayed in movies. Um, it's likely, some there's some speculation that he was the same king that Esther was married to. It may be that the events of chapter one of Esther, where he's having this massive party for like a year, was his way of gathering. Um, Xerxes was a very powerful, very wealthy king of planning the um, adventure against Greece, which goes badly. He's defeated in that war. And from then on, Persia begins its decline until, continuing on to verse three, then a mighty king will arise, to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. And that's exactly what happened. Greece, excuse me, uh, Persia began to decline with Xerxes' defeat and Alexander the Great arises in Greece and conquers the world with crazy rapidity. The dude just like wins everything. He's just like guy, he's, he's the literal goat. In fact, I think that's how he's portrayed in the Bible, right? You have the goat that's cruising along. So is that right? I have to go back and look at Daniel now. I may have, may have said the wrong one, but anyways, Daniel or excuse me, Alexander the Great conquers everything. Everything he sets out to do, verse three. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. Alexander the Great dies at about age thirty-two. Uh, I think Josephus' note is that he dies in a, getting a fever after a drinking party in Babylon, like stays out too late or something, and without enough clothes on, and gets a fever and dies. And his generals get the kingdom because Alexander the Great had three potential heirs, a brother who was kind of crazy and a a son who was born after he died. So the lady was already pregnant, right? And uh, in the course of the ensuing succession, there was was conflict and all of the potential heirs to Alexander died and they split it up among the four generals. Two of which, the kingdoms that come from those two are kind of what follows the rest of Daniel chapter 11. So I'm gonna move really quickly through. We might be able to do this um here's what i want to do daniel 11 is one of those chapters like i say the bible is so clear in its prophecy it's so accurate detailing the conflict between the two of these kings who they'll call the king of the north and the king of the south Um, and by the way the king of the north and the king of the south in relation to israel if we had our middle east map up here you'd have the mediterranean sea little israel right here and then the kingdom of what's called syria if you think of Modern Syria was bigger in those days, and Egypt in the in the south. And so, as those kings had conflict, what's stuck in the middle? Israel. Israel. So they just got hammered back and forth while while the war took place between these two kings. And so that the but the details are so specific that even skeptics acknowledge the accuracy of Daniel chapter eleven. So I'll say a little bit more about that when we get to the end. So they divided into four parts. Goes to these different kings. Uh, Verses 5 through 20 is his first chunk. Um, The king of the south will increase in power. Okay, let me read verse 4. Sorry, I didn't finish it. Uh, So it's divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had, for his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will increase in power. This is the Ptolemies from history, if you know that name, the the Ptolemies. Um, And they ruled Egypt. One will increase in power, but one of his own officials will become more powerful than he and will rule his kingdom with great strength. So this is where the king of the north is actually going to come from this guy that worked for the Ptolemies for a while, and this is the kingdom of the Seleucids from history. So you have the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south, if that's helpful to you. Some years later, an alliance will be formed before the, between the king of the north and the king of the south. The daughter of the king of the south will be given in marriage to the king of the north, to secure the alliance, but she will lose her influence over him, and so will her father. She'll be abandoned along with her supporters. But when one of her relatives becomes king of the south, he will raise an army and enter the, enter the fortress of the king in the north and defeat him. And when he returns to Egypt, he'll carry back their idols with him, along with priceless articles of gold and silver. For some years afterwards, he'll leave the king of the north alone. Later, the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but he will soon return to his own land. However, the sons of the kings of the north will assemble a mighty army that will advance like a flood and carry the battle as far as the enemy's fortress. Then in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast fortresses assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them. I'm going to just fast forward here. This continues for a while. So all that to say, there's a bunch of, of this fighting. And now you'll get down, if you get down to verse 18, you're going to see another um, Peace, enter the picture, enter the chat. After this, he will turn his attention to the coastlands and conquer many cities, but a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to return, or excuse me, to retreat in shame. He'll take refuge in his own fortress. This is the king of the north, but will stumble and fall and be seen no more. Verse 20, his successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. But after a brief reign, he will die, though not from anger in battle. So here we'll stop because we're gonna to get to the guy I wanna talk a little bit more about. So this dude sends out this, this tax collector, forget his name, it starts with an H, and there's betrayal involved, and this guy gets murdered that, or poisoned. That's the suspicion. We don't know for sure, but it appears that the guy was poisoned. 21, this guy's going to come to power. Now, there's a guy named Antiochus IV, I think. Um, he's going to give himself the title of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he's away, and I can't remember what kingdom. It might even have been in, in Greece at that time. And uh, he comes to power, fills in that vacuum, has some people murdered along the way. And so it says, the next to come to power will be a despicable man who is not in line for royal succession. He will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery intrigue. And that's exactly what this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes did. Before him, great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. He actually winds up um, supplanting the high priest in, um, in Israel, basically sells the office. Things had gotten so corrupt in Israel that a dude was like, I would really like to be high priest. And Antiochus was like, okay, cool. And the guy's like, I'll give you all this money. And so he kicks out that legit high priest and installs his like fake guy. So things had gotten wonky. With deceitful promises, he'll make various alliances. He will become strong despite having only a handful of followers. And without warning, he'll enter the richest areas of his land And then he will distribute among his followers the plunder and wealth of the rich. He's a real mover and shaker politically using influence and wealth to get what he wants, just like he did with that high priest. He'll plot the overthrow of strongholds, but this will last for only a short while. Then he'll stir up his courage, raise a great army against the king of the south. So he's coming down for Egypt. The king of the south will go to battle with a mighty army, but to no avail, for there will be plots against him. His own household will cause his downfall. His army will be swept away and many killed. Seeking nothing but each other's harm, these kings will plot against each other at the conference tables. They come together to try for this peace treaty, but everybody's lying to each other, trying to manipulate the situation, and it doesn't work out. Attempting to deceive each other, but it will make no difference, for the end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will then return home with great riches. On the way, he will set himself against the people of the holy covenant. Who's that? The Jews. So again, these Jews are just getting hammered. And his deal is um, he wants to Hellenize the Jews. Let I me mean, you know what that, the Hel- Hellen is, Hellenism is the basic, the, the Greek culture. And he decides that I'm done with you Jews having your own distinct culture and part of my kingdom. I'm gonna make you be like us. You're gonna wear our clothes. You're gonna cut our hair up the way we do it. You're gonna get rid of your worship system. You're gonna be Greek. Now, how do you think the Jewish people responded to that? Well, actually there were two different responses. Some of the people were like, awesome. We are tired of being weird. We would love to fit in and so bring it on, let's go for it, right? And dude, and then there were other people that were like, heck no, we are the people of God, we're distinct, and we're not gonna we're not gonna take it anymore, right? So boy, that I think that actually rings true today, where you see the world, you know, what is what is the what does the Bible say to us? Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, don't be conformed to this world, Paul writes to the Romans. But you see some Christians where and maybe you feel that pull in you sometimes to just, I'm sick of standing out. You know, I believe that marriage is just between a man, one man, one woman for one lifetime. And everybody's giving me grief about this. And I think that, you know, God created the male and female and everybody's giving me grief about this. And it's like, I'm tired of standing out. Can I just kind of duck and cover? And there's that part of us that can, can really feel that way. I believe that Jesus is the only way to have your sins forgiven, to be reconciled to God. That's so narrow. Why don't you believe in more than one way? So I think, you know, when you read this, you can you can feel for the people of Israel as they're getting run over And I think it's good for us to realize that, man, that's a a temptation to watch. for. I wonder if that's part of the reason that God gave this prophecy to Daniel to give to his people, that they would know ahead of time that this was coming, that they could prepare for it, that they could make up their mind to say, when the world presses in on me and says, conform, I need to know that that's coming and decide I won't do it. And I think that's a word... That's a word for us today. Yeah, she brings bowing to the music in Babylon, the world is always trying to squeeze us into its mold. Let's not be people that get taken in by that. We don't have to be jerks or fight anybody, but just, just be true to our God. And there certainly were people that were at that time as well. Verse 29, then at the appointed time, he will once again invade the South. We're almost done for tonight, but this time the result will be different. Verse 30, for warships from the Western coastlines, we mentioned that commander earlier, will scare him off and he will withdraw and return home. Let's just pause there for a second. These warships from the Western coastlands, or do you have from Cyprus? What do you have there, verse 30? From where? Kittim, Kittim? Mm -hmm. anybody else? These are the Roman, Rome has now risen. right? This is our fourth kingdom in Daniel's uh, panorama. And Rome is starting to come on scene. And the king of the South, that would be the Egyptian people, Ptolemies, had made this alliance with Rome. And Rome comes, steps in, and handles business with Antiochus. And this, the famous story that I heard, and this, this sounds so cool, is once he'd been defeated, the Roman commander comes to him and says, here's the deal, Antiochus, you have a choice to make. You can either become a vassal state of Rome, you know, you can work for us. If you think of like Putin right now, like you can either become one of part of the Russia deal or you can um, let us just wipe you out and take everything you have. And here's the thing, you have to make a decision before you leave this circle. And he drew in the sand around Antiochus, the circle. I know, right? You're like, whoa, I wanna watch that DVD. Yeah, exactly, line in the sand. Uh, or I guess now nobody watches DVDs. I wanna stream that show. So anyway, yeah, this, so this is where Rome enters the chat for real and Antiochus has just gotten his business handed to him and so he heads back, but watch what happens. Um, but he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant and reward those who forsake The covenant. So he goes back and he's like, I want you to be done. Like I say, being Jewish, we're gonna change all this stuff. His army will take over the temple fortress 31, pollute the sanctuary and put to stop the daily sacrifices and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. What's your translation have there? Verse 31. Yeah, no, what is that? Who quotes that verse? Who quotes it? No. No. I mean, you're talking about that, but who somebody quotes this? Come on, Jesus quotes it in Matthew 24. Jesus says, "Hey, when you see what was spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation." Right. So Jesus references this verse. Now, keep in mind, Antiochus Epiphanes is a couple hundred years before Jesus, and Antiochus goes into the temple, puts a stop to the daily sacrifices. Remember, he says, "You guys are going to be done with your Jewishness. We're going to make you all Greeks." here's what he does. Dude, this is so gross. He sets up a statue of Zeus in the temple, takes a pig, sacrifices it on the altar and takes the blood and the juices of that sacrificed pig and sprinkles it over the whole temple setup. So now how do you think that the true Jewish people responded to this? Totally. I mean, this is the most defiling. This is the abomination of desolation. How dare you go into the holy place of God and do this awful thing? And so from here, you see, if the name the Maccabees means anything to you, and there's a couple apocryphal books, first and second Maccabees, that detail the revolt led by Judas Maccabeus and his descendants and family to fight against this Hellenic... the Hellenization of their people. And it's a, obviously a brutal war. And the, the numbers, if you go and research this through history of Jewish people that, that Antiochus sold off into slavery, murdered or imprisoned is substantial. He just waged war against the Jewish people. It was very much the kind of thing that we read about. It sort of um, echoes this and I'll stop in just a moment, I promise. But um, the kind of persecution that we may see much more of when the Antichrist is on scene. But I, I want to make this point. This is important. If if Antiochus was 200 years-ish before Jesus, and he did this, and Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, is Jesus talking about something that happened in the past or something that's going to happen in the future? In the future, Matthew 24 is a future-looking text. So Jesus makes the point that some of what's in chapter 11, even though there's been an antecedent, that is something that's happened in history that looks like that, that there's a future fulfillment of that yet to happen. That's important to the way that we read this whole chapter. So 32, with flattery, he'll win over those who violated the covenant. And I love the last part of verse 32. Would you look at it, maybe block this out? But the people who know their God will be strong and resist him maccabees guys this goes back to that i think this is such a good verse for us who are the people that stand up and resist him what's the con what is the characteristic of the people who resist the 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 powers of darkness at that time it's not what it says boldness is true but it's not what it says what's it say the people who know their god the the people who have a relationship with with God that's intimate. Guys, if you are wanting to stand in an evil day, if you're wanting to stand, if we're wanting to stand up the right way for things, we need to be people who have a deep relationship with Jesus. Press into him. Man, knowing him, knowing what's true, knowing his love, letting that transform you will give you a ground to stand on when the whole world is shifting around you. When even the people who are supposed to be leaders like high priests are engaged in all sorts of financial shenanigans. When the the church, as it were, is like polluted The temple at that time, of course, being polluted in that way. The people who know their God. Stand up and do it different. Love it. Verse 33, wise leaders will give instruction to many, but these teachers will die, excuse me, yes, these teachers will die by sword, fire, or be jailed and robbed. And during these persecutions, little help will arrive, and many who join them will not be sincere, and some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way, they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still Yet to come. And I will stop right there and just say that this is a a nice break. What happens after this in chapter 11, again, to this point has been specifically fulfilled in history by Antiochus, but with echoes of something more to come. The rest of chapter 11 has things that sound kind of like Antiochus, but again, are more than that. For example, in verse 37, which we'll talk about next time, he'll have no respect for the gods of his ancestors, for the God loved by women or any God, for he will boast that he is greater than them all. Now, Antiochus didn't do this. He certainly desecrated the temple, but whose image did he set up in the temple? Zeus. Zeus. He didn't say, I'm God. He said, Zeus is God. But this guy that he's talking about now by the time you get to verse 37 is a guy who steps in the temple and says, I'm God. And do we see such a character? Yeah, we do. By the time we read Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he's saying, this is the mark. There's going to be a guy someday who will stand in the temple declaring himself to be God. So it seems like the rest of 11 really is speaking more about a future king who would be like Antiochus. If you would, Antiochus is sort of the trailer and the Antichrist as we know him is the feature film. Antiochus sort of prefigures him. Now, I just want to make one more point about this. One more point, and I have a quote here. As I mentioned, these details, and if you want to study 11, I read through sections of it without making those historical ties. You can go back and see how particularly this was all fulfilled. And again, it's so accurate. And Daniel was writing, as we saw back in uh, 536 BC, this was all future for him. So even critics of the Bible read this through and they go, man, this really lines up. So what are they to do? Well, they have a choice. They can either acknowledge that God of the Bible is who he says he is and can predict the future, or they must explain it away. And how do they explain it away, you think? Yeah, they wrote it later. Some guy claiming to be Daniel really wrote this after these events happened, and he just put it in there, you know, and slipped it in and said, "Oh, look, I can tell the future." Well, that theory has problems. Here they are. For a long time there wasn't a um, there wasn't really a, an easy answer to that, but one of the great finds Uh, If you get to go to Israel again, in Qumran were these ancient copies of books of the Bible that we didn't have that went back a lot further, right? And so they found this copy of, of the book of Daniel. The finding of a complete manuscript of Daniel among the Qumran papers, which was hundreds of years older than the oldest copy of Daniel previously found, served to undermine this position because it brought the book of Daniel back to the second century B.C. That's, a you know, 100, 200 years before Jesus, right? but it was written in comparatively modern hebrew instead of ancient hebrew so does this make sense so it'd be like if let's suppose we were trying to figure out the date of my bible i've got the nlt here nlt is written in pretty modern english right let's suppose we um we someone said hey you know the bible was written back in um in the 1600s or something and some people were skeptical like no it totally wasn't you know the king james bible that didn't ever exist or whatever and we find, you know, all we've got is your NLTs, and who knows if that wasn't written in whenever. Well, we find an NLT from, say, like the seventeen hundreds, and it's written in this kind of modern English. I know that wouldn't happen, but now if that was the case, and we know that the NLT was a copy of another book, does that does that make sense? Like we know that people didn't write in modern English at the at a certain point in time. I'm doing a really bad job with this analogy. Let me just keep reading them. Try again. So. So it's in comparatively modern Hebrew instead of ancient Hebrew. So according to the liberal the Oh, sorry. Yeah, I got it now. Got it. But we know that there's a King James, okay, so we've got Michael's NLT. Boy, I'm really killing this here. We've got <laughs> Michael's NLT. And we've got a King James version, right? And people are saying, hey, the King James predates the NLT and all that. Like, all right, fine, whatever. We don't believe that. We think it was only, you know, from whatever year. So then we find an NLT in more modern English back in the seventeen hundreds but we know that there's copies of the old English. Now, did the old English come before the new English? Yeah, yeah, right? So so if this is a copy of old English, if this is an adaptation, an upgrade from that, then there had to be a pre-existing copy for them to modernize it. Does that make sense? So by moving this back to a couple hundred years, and given that in antiquity, people didn't produce documents quickly right this had to be hand scribed by somebody copied transmitted over time that means the way documents are that there had to be older copies predating that which gets us back before the dates of the events that are captured in the book so i'll just keep reading here so so it brought the book of daniel back to the second century bc but in comparatively modern hebrew instead of ancient hebrew according to the old these critics positions this would require a couple of centuries between this copy and the original which of course would have it back in daniel's lifetime or at least before the events described in daniel one one. critics have been largely silent about this discovery but a new generation of critics will have to face the fact that their old theory no longer holds and the book of daniel contains genuine prophecy that is the point i wanted to make you guys the book that you hold and that you and i read is a supernatural book and if it could hold true in those things that it said, then we can trust it in the other things that it said, including the things that are yet to come. And the last point I wanted to make, the thing I've been praying about as we've been preparing for this is like, Lord, you, you know, when I read chapter 11, honestly, some of that section that we went through is a little boring to me. The section I want to get to is what's next because that already happened. Like, oh yeah, I mean, history is interesting, but that doesn't, I don't have to worry about Antiochus Epiphanes. He's dead, been the ground for you know a few thousand years. So why did the Lord give that to his people? Why would he have taken time to write that down for them? So okay, but not us. I'm asking, what do you think the Jewish people of Daniel's day and those who've predated us, why would they need to know those things? Why did the de- angel say to Daniel, hey, I want, I've been sent to give this message from God to you to give to my people? What? God's word, yes. First off, number one, and this is a big deal. God... Hang on one sec, I want to hear that, but I'm going to talk and I can't. um, God is in control of all things. When the world looks crazy, like it does right now, you can really responsibly take rest in this idea that everything has been written in his book. He knows a plan. You do not have to freak out. Man, Jesus says, when all the, Chris keeps reminding of this great verse, when all these things happen, this is his writing in Luke 21, look up, your salvation is drawing near. It should cause us, when we see the world going crazy, we should be like, it is so good to know you, Lord, that all things are in your hand and you're coming back. Dylan, what was your your point? Is that same? Okay, thanks. Um, What else could it be useful for? How about this? If the people in the days of Antiochus had read Daniel's prophecy, remember it had been several hundred years since Daniel gave it, how might they have reacted differently? So Antiochus rolls through and he's like, hey, let's be done being Jewish. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and shut this temple system down. I'm gonna sacrifice a pig on the altar. Oh, yes, you should be like, wait a second. I've read about this guy. It doesn't end well for him not joining that team. The people who know their God display strength and takes action. I know what I'm supposed to do. Man, you guys, people who get away from God's word are unmoored. When the world comes at them with various things, they're like, I don't know, I guess that's true. Maybe we're smarter today. And they just go down the road. Man, you've got to know God's word and cling to it. it could, if the people of Jesus' day had read the Bible, man, they might've recognized Jesus. You know, He says, you didn't recognize today the things that make for peace. So God writes these things down ahead to prove who he is, to uh, give us peace when things get crazy and so that we can be prepared when it's our turn. Yeah. Right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this. I, I so want to be a man like Daniel that when I mourn, when I have those places maybe where you've said no, or there's things in my life that are disappointing, that I persist in prayer. And Lord, you know, this is a weakness for me. I'm such a, a slacker about prayer. I do it almost like a religious exercise, except when I'm in real trouble. And then I cry out like crazy. Lord, make me a man who just persists in prayer and believes that you're good, that believes that you love me. Lord, I want so much for myself and for your people to pray like Paul did, to say, Lord, would you please let us know how wide and deep your love is, that just like you stretched out your arms on the cross that day and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what you're doing, that you love us. You love us to that degree. And may that change us and cause us to live from that place. And Lord, as you've written down prophecy for us that pertains to the days, maybe even in which we live or days yet to come, may we be people who know our God, who display strength and take action and aren't swept away by the fear in the world or the ways of the world, but stand and shine brightly for you.